All right, we're going to start my sermon just a little different this morning. Only take 10 seconds. So, go ahead. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Now, don't confuse that uh, the guy in the witness chair is God, <laughs> okay? But this, the prophecy that we're going to be looking at from Malachi, we're going to focus on seven questions that the people asked. Well, they didn't really ask them. God asked them for them. And the, the title of the message this morning is something like, you know what? Don't ask the questions if you don't want the answer. Don't ask the questions if you don't want to hear the truth. And it's really a bad idea to do that if you're talking to God because God is truth. Amen? So he's going to speak truth no matter what. And sometimes we don't want to hear what God has to say. Now, that sounds terrible when we're talking to a group of Christians, doesn't it? We all want God to speak to us. Amen. Lord, speak to me. I need to hear from you. And then he speaks. And that still voice of the Holy Spirit, not tight, not, sometimes not so still. And we go, oh, no, that's not what I wanted to hear. And sometimes we go, I don't even understand that. God, I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I don't get it. And that's okay as long as we just don't discard it and throw it away and never give it another thought. So we're going to look at the prophet Malachi, and this is the last of the minor prophets. For those of you that have endured 12 sermons on the minor prophets, you can, almost, you can go ahead and say amen if you'd like. I hope you've read them as we've been going through them. There's so much that we can learn about God's expectation and desire for his people in the Old Testament. Just because it's Old Testament and Jesus had not come to earth yet as a human being doesn't mean that there's not a lot of application to our own lives when we read the Old Testament. We also need to remember, when we are in the Old Testament, it's a different covenant, though. We need to remember that. We don't want to take some things and say, well, it was applied to them, now it applies to us. Some things aren't the same. We don't have to live by the law, right? We do not live by the law that was given to his people there. But there's an awful lot of principles that apply to us so the book of Malachi, if you'll recall very briefly, I'll just give an overview. There was a whole lot of prophesying to God's chosen people. They didn't listen much. God kept calling them back to himself. He'd, he'd send the prophets and with all the warnings and telling them, hey, if you don't come back to me, there's going to be some discipline taking place. And he got so serious that he says, you know what, I'm going to use a foreign army to discipline my people. And the prophets prophesied about this, telling them this is what's coming. And eventually, Babylon, the, the uh, dynasty of Babylon came, and their armies came, and they conquered Israel. And they took a number of exiles back to Babylon with them. Now, we need to remember, not, they didn't take every single Jew back to Babylon. What they did is they took probably the most educated, the most talented, the most trained. Most of them probably came from Jerusalem and the, or near Jerusalem. But they took a lot of people back, and they were there for a long time, like 70 years long time. And as we talked the last couple prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the people have come back. And what they've come back to is a mess. The city was destroyed. The walls are down. The, the, the temple had been destroyed. And they were told to rebuild the temple. And let's rebuild the city. And we heard in the last couple of messages how the people got really discouraged, got a little lazy. 
and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. The foundation of the temple got built, and they did started doing some sacrifices, and then it stopped. And then it took another 16 years before they got their act together, listening to the prophets and being encouraged by the prophets, and they rebuilt the temple. So now we come to the last prophet that we read in the Old Testament. We come to Malachi. And Malachi is prophesying approximately 100 years since the first exiles came back to Jerusalem. So about 100 years have passed. But some things haven't changed much. The temple had been built, yes. Worship had been taking place, yes. But they were not doing it according to what God had asked them to do. And the people were still discouraged and murmuring and complaining. Good thing Christians today, we don't ever do that. But they were. And Malachi comes and he prophesies to them. And it's different than all the other prophets we we talked about. If you read the book of Malachi, like I said, there's seven questions. And that's what I'm just going to focus on. A little different format this morning. I'm going to focus on these seven questions. Seven accusations that God makes and the seven questions that God speaks for them. So that's what we're going to be looking at. As I said, you know, when you look at these questions, and if really if you are asking these questions, you better know you want to hear the truth because God doesn't mince words sometimes. So we're going to start in Luke, or Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, the very first one where it simply says, and this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, okay? So I'm not going to keep repeating that. When I say it's the Lord speaking, it's through the prophet. And the Lord says, I have loved you, said the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Now you've got to think for a moment, if you would, who he's speaking to. His chosen people. The people he delivered from slavery in Egypt century before, centuries before. The God who parted the Red Sea. The God who has set them free from 70 years of captivity. This is the God that's demonstrated his love and his care and concern over and over and over and over. And God has to remind them, I love you. I love you. They were discouraged. They weren't happy. Things weren't going the way they liked. One of the themes we'll see in a lot of these questions, they're looking around at the neighbors, the ungodly neighbors, and they're saying, they're rich. They got lots of crops and food, and they don't even worship our God. So their eyes were always on that and saying, why would we bother? And God starts out saying, I love you. He was reminding them. And we need to remember, God does not choose arbitrarily. He didn't one day wake up if he ever sleeps, which you know he doesn't. He didn't wake up and say, you know, I think I need a people, and I, there's a guy, I'm going to pick Abraham. No, he has a purpose and a reason. And he didn't one day randomly wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to see if Mike will respond to my call. I'm going to see if Mary will respond to my call. I'm going to see if Matthew will respond to my call. Every single one of us, God did not choose you arbitrarily. He has a plan. We know the scriptures tell us before he even formed us in the womb, he had a plan and a destiny for us. Luke shared that a couple of weeks ago as a word from the Lord, that there's a plan. 
So he doesn't, change, he doesn't choose arbitrarily. He has a purpose and a plan, and yet he's having to remind them, and sometimes we need to be reminded, I love you. I love you unconditionally. I don't want to hear about what you think you've done bad and why you're disqualifying yourself. I don't want to hear about that. I just love you. Repent would be okay, but don't disqualify yourself. You're mine. We don't sometimes understand the reason why he calls anybody. And we don't know for sure why he called Abraham. Why did he call any of these people in the Old Testament, even the New Testament? Why did he call you? Why did he call me? And then why did he give us the grace to accept the call? I don't know. I hope you're glad he did. And once he chose Israel, he has to remind them throughout their history, you're still mine. Once he chooses you, and they respond, you are son, we stay chosen. He isn't just waiting to see, okay, I chose you. Eh, This has not been a good month. You're out. He doesn't do that. We have bad months. We might even have bad years, sadly, some of us, after we know the Lord. But he still loves us. He chose us. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are chosen. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Loved by God, he has chosen you. So the first thing God did through the prophet, before he starts getting serious, is reminds him that he loves him. And then it gets a little more serious. In the second question, In Malachi 1, verse 6, it says this. God speaking through the prophet says, As a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I'm the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? How have we done that? What do you mean, God? How have we despised your name? They called him God. They called him Master. They called him Father. But they did not show any reverence, in particular, in this case, in their sacrifices. You know, God had laid out the law and told them how to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, what to go through in all of this process. But he did it to honor himself by what the people did. It was about honoring God, being glory to God. He says, the scripture tells us he created everything for his honor, so everything that he created should be bringing honor and glory to God. Doesn't always do that. He's telling these people, you've despised my name. When it comes right down to it, as we go through all these questions, what you discover is, and it's true for us today, everything is an attitude of our heart. It's an attitude of the heart. Some of the things he confronts with as as he goes through You'll hear them say, like we already have, huh? When? What? It's like, are, could they possibly be oblivious to what they've been doing or not doing? Sadly, it's possible. Some of these things, and our, our faith and our walk with the Lord, it happens slowly as we just kind of drift a little bit off track, a little bit more off track, and we keep drifting. And if if nobody comes alongside of us and tries to help us get back on track, we can drift so far over here, we don't even know what we're doing is wrong anymore. 
We don't even realize that we're not pleasing God. We're not honoring God. We actually may be defiling his very name because of our attitude. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything. Hard attitude. Why am I doing it? Why do I do my work? Why do I go to my job? Why do I do and interact with my family and my friends the way I do? To honor and glorify God. Most of us don't think that way. Most of the time. They certainly were not thinking that way. 6.20 in 1 Corinthians, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God. Honor God with your body. We'll come back to that. 3.17 of Colossians. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father Almighty. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? You do it in such a way that you are representing Christ and you're bringing honor and glory to God. He's speaking to us just like God was dealing with these issues back in the time of sacrifice in the Old Testament with the people and the priests. And then we're going to go to one verse seven, chapter 1, verse 7. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. It kind of ties in within the question number two. But <clears throat> they're actually wondering, how are we defiling you? If they knew anything, and the priests knew, they understood clearly what the sacrificial system was supposed to be like. A lot of it had been lost during their uh, exile Babylon, to Babylon, but the scriptures had been rediscovered. They had been reread. The priests were well aware of what they were supposed to do. And he says, You are sacrificing things that defile me. The sacrificial system was designed, as I said earlier, to honor himself. I mean, God had said, and Jesus represents it to us, he was a sinless, spotless, pure, and holy Lamb of God. And God had told the Old Testament priests clear instructions. The animals that come to sacrifice, making sure they're perfect, make sure there's no flaws. And here God is speaking to them, and, and they're saying, what do you mean we're defiling you? He says, hey, you're bringing the blind animals, the sick animals, the lame animals, and you're offering them to me. What do you think would happen if you offered them to the governor? Would he listen to you? Would he be pleased with you? But that's what you're bringing to me. And I'm not going to put up with it. It's not blessing me. It's not honoring me. What do we bring? What does God want from us as New Testament saints? What does God want from us in terms of sacrifice? And again, they're asking the question. It just baffles me. You know, in their mind, God is saying, you're saying to yourselves this, how have we defiled you? And he's speaking especially to the priests. How can you be not aware of what you're doing? Again, how slowly did it happen? What are they doing? How did it creep in? Malachi 1, 13, verse, the first part of the verse says, you also say, my, how tiresome this is. What is? The sacrificial system. Man, this is just getting tiring. This is kind of boring. This is monotonous. Day after day, week after week, year after year, we got to go through the same sacrifices over and over and over. How boring. Now, religion can get that way, can't it? But it should never get that way. 
True religion should never get that way. And he's saying, the priests are saying, and God's accusing them, that you've just let it become a habit. You're going through the motions, and you're going through the motions with defiled animals. In Romans 12.1, for us, more application for us. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, and this is Paul writing to the church. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Some translations say at the end, this is a reasonable act of service. What does God want from you and me? He looks at us, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And he says, you are now a living sacrifice, and I want you to live as a living sacrifice unto me. I want you to lay down your life for me. And your life should demonstrate to the world around you that I live in you. And your life and the way you live, the way you treat other people, the way you interact, the way you honor others. And of course, most importantly, the way you demonstrate your love toward me. All of that is considered the sacrifice. It's pleasing to the God. It's pleasing to God. And he says, this is just a very reasonable act of worship. If you remember, I sent my son and he died for you. And he says, so don't come to me. And he gets to this in one of the next questions. Don't come with to me pretending. Don't come to me with empty, hollow words. What pleases me is the real deal. Real deal. I want to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave him the up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. This should be just normal Christian living if we're submitted to the Holy Spirit that lives in us. As we're submitted to the Holy Spirit, that's, that just flows out of us. And God says, that's what I want. That's the sacrifice that pleases me. Not all this other stuff. Certainly not works. It's an attitude, again, of the heart. Verse, or the fourth question, Malachi 2, verse 17. The Lord says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone does evil, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? How have you wearied him? Wearied him. How have you just made God tired? The words you speak. The words that you're speaking. I'm so, you know, this is Mike's paraphrase. I'm so tired of hearing that because it means nothing. I'm looking at your life. I'm looking the way you're being obedient. I'm looking at the sacrifices you're offering in the Old Testament. I'm looking at the way you're offering the way you live to me now as a living sacrifice. And it doesn't line up with your words. Your words weary me. I'm tired of hearing those things. The people were depressed. The people were discouraged. And in the natural, I can understand because they're depressed, they're discouraged, things aren't going well for them, and they're looking at this other nation around them and it seems like God's blessing their socks off. They're prospering. Everything's good. They're happy. Why, we're discouraged. And they start complaining and murmuring. Malachi 2.17, You have wearied the Lord with your words that you say, how have we wearied him? 
and they're accusing God of being unjust. One of the very character attributes of God is he's a very just God. And he's saying, there's, he's saying to them, you, you look over there at the neighbors who have got it all, and they're ungodly as all get out. They don't have anything to do with me, with God, the God we worship, and that they're blessed. That's not fair, God. Where's the justice? Don't I deserve what they have? God's saying, your words are wearying me. I'm tired of hearing it. The complaining and grumbling among the people. Assuming that somehow or other God is unjust. And he says, your words. And we forget this sometimes. And maybe you've heard this scripture, I'm sure most of us. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that we say reveal a lot about our heart. And this is what God is saying to these people. And he speaks that to us similarly. What are you saying about me? What are you thinking about me? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Malachi chapter 2, when they accuse God of being unjust, and they continue to complain, and they continue to be frustrated with seemingly rewarding the wicked the way he was doing. And then in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here for just a moment from the questions because there's an important prophecy here that we, I think we need to read if you're not reading the books as we go through them. But in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 7, we see a prophecy of the coming Messiah and the coming of John, John the Baptist. So he's encouraging them in the midst of all of this questioning back and forth. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, See that I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist, I've come to prepare the way of the Lord. His first coming. And then it says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord, God Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? As we see so often in these prophetic books, The first part of the prophecy was about his first coming by John the Baptist, and here he jumps to Christ's second coming. And he goes on and says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. It's interesting because notice both of those things, they don't destroy, they purify. Cleanse. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, the priests, And he will refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But then he says, do not fear me. So he's speaking to the people, and he says he's going to come, and he's going to come in judgment, but not just in judgment. He's going to come in judgment for those who do not believe and accept Christ. He's going to come in judgment for those who reject Christ. It's not going to be a pretty day for them. But he says this in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Thank goodness. So you, O descendants of Jacob, you will not be destroyed, 
Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, and then the next question, they say, how do we return to you? How do we return? God, what do you mean, return to you? You're still our God. Yeah, maybe in lip service. You're not sacrificing as if I'm your God. You're not living and acting like I'm your God. Return to me first. And that's the fifth question. What way shall we return? Can you imagine, Israel, if this statement had fact and God says it, so it did, they didn't know how to return to God. They didn't know how to get in right relationship with God. Where was this deception coming from? You can ask the same question of us sometimes. I feel so far from God. First thing we should ask ourselves and, and ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, reveal to me if there's anything in my life that I need to confess, the sin. I want to be close to you. God doesn't depart from us. We depart from him. All he's waiting for us is us to come back, turn to him, and he'll immediately embrace us. Of course, we have a deceiver, Satan, the demonic things that will whisper those voices, causing us to think that we're not acceptable. We can't turn back to him. Somehow, I've been so evil for so long. I've been deep in this sin, and it's a horrible sin for years. I can't possibly. God says, no, 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 just return to me, and I'll be there. I'll return to you. And then that section ends with the next question. Will a man rob God? And they say, how in the world is man or we robbing God? And it seems like a big jump from all the things God's been dealing with and talking to them about. All of a sudden, he's going to tell them how you're robbing me, and he's going to jump to tithes and offerings. In our words, money. Why did that jump in here with all of this other seemingly spiritual, more spiritual things when they say, God points out, you're robbing me. And they look at him and scratch their head and grab their wallet and say, how are we doing that? And he tells them, and and, and as we see in this, the reason I, I think it's here is there's probably not many better heart checks than what they're doing with their material goods. God is saying, I've been blessing you with all of this. I've provided for years. Blessing you. Now you're accusing me of being unjust. You're accusing me of not caring about you. You're, you're saying they got it better than you. I continue to bless you, and I want to bless you even more. I want to bless you more and more and more. I'm going to bless you so much that it's like the windows of heaven are open and I'm going to just pour out blessings upon you. But you're robbing me, and he says, with your tithes and offerings. And I think it's strictly a picture of the heart, and God's trying to capture their heart, causing them to look at something so basic. You and I need to remember in the Old Testament, this was part of the law. God said, you will do this. It's not a law in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we are not under that law. But he also said just in a verse or two before, he says, I'm the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I don't change. What, the, what do you mean that you don't change? He says, I still look at the heart. 
And I believe there's a principle for us in the New Testament in our area of giving and generosity. And we spent time on that not that long ago. So I'm not going to go into a whole other deep discussion. But it's a heart check. He wants those to give because we understand and realize everything I have belongs to him. Or at least I'll give that lip service. Everything. And, and he's just saying, show me your heart. And that's what he's telling these people. And he tells them to bring the whole tithe, again, under the law, bring that whole tithe into the storehouse. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3. He says, test me in this. And you've heard this before. God doesn't say that very often, does he? Test me in this. And he says, blessings will come. As your heart aligns, as you're returning to me, blessings will come. I'll rebuke the devourer for you. Boy, you can go on that one a long time. I will rebuke the devourer for you when you follow what I've asked you to do. And he says, it's going to be so impressive that all of the neighboring nations are going to call you blessed. So he's saying, don't rob God, don't rob me. And the last question that we're going to look at in 3 verses 13 is, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Here he comes back to the word thing again. Your words, you're speaking arrogantly. You're speaking pridefully against me. Similar to when you said your words have defiled me. Again, they didn't even realize. They didn't even understand what they were saying. They weren't, they weren't guarding their mouth. They weren't guarding their tongue. And the, the, all of a sudden, they're speaking things that are hurting the heart of God. And we can slide into that with just being careless. Just being careless. We can get around friends, peers at work, whatever, and all of a sudden we're entering into the same conversations, the same stories, and all of a sudden things are coming out of our mouth that we, we would know better in the right circumstance. But at the moment we got careless with what we're saying. Careless words, selfish words, Malachi 3, verses 14 and 15, the last scripture I'll read. He says, you have said, what's the use of serving God? Now, I would hope a Christian would be wiser than choosing to say that. What's the use of serving God? But at the same time, I can see when I am down and depressed and discouraged, and it seems like nothing's happening, my prayers aren't being answered or heard, which is all I, I can get to that place where, God, what's the use? What's the point? What's in this thing for me? He says, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying your commands or trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of hosts that we're sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil and get rich, they get rich. And those who dare God to punish them, they don't suffer any harm. They had just developed an attitude of what's the point? This is useless. What is the point? He said, you're your words that you have spoken against me have hurt. And it's an easy snare for all of us to fall into. We need to be watchful. Take the thoughts captive. At the end of the book of Malachi, he's reminding them again that they, whatever they're going through is so temporary. Now all of us go through things, and man alive, we think it's the worst thing in the world, and it's not good sometimes. And sometimes it lasts, and it's like, is it ever going to end? 
That's when our thinking has become temporal. It's become earthly. We, we re- need to realize that our real home is eternal. And this is what he's saying to them. There's coming a day. I know, it, I know it's bad right now in the natural. I know you're going through sufferings. But all those things, when you, you keep your heart right, they're going to build your faith. They're going to draw you closer to me. And there's coming a day when I am going to come. And those that have rejected me, they're going to be punished. But you guys, those that are faithful, those that truly love me, those that have truly accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that will be a day of reward that's almost unimaginable. And Malachi comes back to that, like some of the other prophets have at the very end. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your discouragement, we need to remember those words are so true for us. God's coming back one day for his church, his bride. And no matter what we've gone through in this short time we have on earth, it's going to seem like nothing. Even though at the moment, this affliction that we're going through really is painful, hurtful. And to make sure we're on the right end of that, we simply have to acknowledge that we're a sinner, that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, that he died as a sinless sacrifice for us, and that he was raised from the dead as proof that the sacrifice was sufficient. And we are given this opportunity to accept that gift of salvation. And and we have to accept it. And that even comes by the grace of God. In our own strength, we'd say, no thanks. But by the grace of God, we we say yes and surrender our life to him. Some of us here have believed some lies for a long, long time. Something even as subtle as, well, there's plenty of time to make that decision. Some of us don't think that uh, this is all wishful thinking. The reality is, the Word of God is true. Some of us have believed a really common lie. I believe this for a while. I know a lot of friends and family that believe it for a long time. If I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the fun on this earth is over. Anybody think that way? Anybody hear people say that? What do you Christians do to have fun? I remember my brother saying to me, what do you guys do when you get together at your house? Just drink coffee and look at each other? Well, I said we move our lips some too. <laughs> but we, we, we believe the lie that the world is supposed to be satisfying us. The world will never satisfy us. You can never a party enough to be satisfied. You can never have enough money to be truly satisfied. You can't have a big enough car or house to be satisfied. Only one thing satisfies us. And the devil does not want that truth revealed. So he will lie and lie and lie. So hopefully nobody here is believing those things. But I know I did for a while. And some of us here probably did too. Accepting Christ is the key 